This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. Hi, this is Pastor Ben and Wanda Anderson of Solid Rock Christian Center, and we're just thrilled to be on the show with Dr. Karen Wilson-Stocks. You're going to be excited about listening to the role of the Black church in history and also um, how it affects us today. So stay tuned, and I, I know you're going to enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. Today, I am delighted to start a two-part series with two people who are spiritual leaders, community leaders, savvy business people, and dear friends. I've known one for 25 years and the other for more than 30 years. In today's show, we will talk about the role of the Black church, past and present. Next time, we'll talk about the innovative ministry that they have started and successfully grown in their own church. Before I formally introduce Pastor Ben and Pastor Wanda Anderson, let me first say something about the history of the Black church in the United States. Many great leaders who served the society at large were grown, developed, and nurtured in the Black church. The first official Black church in the United States was established in 1794 by Richard Allen and also his colleague Absalom Jones, who were both first lay ministers at St. George's Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. When they left St. George's, they started the Free African Society, whose mission was to uphold the cause of the oppressed. Now, St. George's Episcopal Church was a racially integrated church serving both white and black members in Philadelphia. And Richard Allen, as well as Absalom Jones, they were lay ministers in that church. And specifically, Pastor Allen, he actually served as the pastor to the black membership and often was preaching in very early morning services. However, in 1793, an incident occurred. And this incident occurred because as Richard Allen was preaching the word of God to the Black community, many more Black people were actually joining St. George's Church. And the numbers were so large that it was difficult to seat everyone. So the white members of the congregation started seating the Black members on the outer perimeter of the inside of the church along the walls. And then there came a day when they sent all of the Black members up to the gallery or up to the balcony. People who were in the gallery weren't upset about it initially until in the middle of prayer during the service, as they were kneeling down and praying to God, some of the leaders of the church came over and told them, you can't kneel here. And they said, well, wait until the prayer service ends before you interrupt us, and then we'll be sure to follow whatever the protocols are. However, they would not wait. They continued to interrupt the Black members, and they snatched them up from those positions 
where they were kneeling on the floor in the church in the gallery. So at that point, a large group of the Black members of the church exited in mass. They left the church building and they were really outraged by the way in which they were treated. Ultimately, in a short term for the interim, they hired a storeroom where they could hold a separate worship service. St. George's, which I'll refer to as the white church, then began to threaten them and told them not to continue their separate worship service. However, the black church did get some help from Dr. Benjamin Rush, who was a white physician who had a lot of public influence, and also from Robert Ralston, who was a white member of the community and who became their treasurer as they mounted essentially what we would call a capital campaign today to raise money for the new church, which they decided to build. They were very successful and they prayed to God and they really believed that God is the one who opened up the doors and allowed them to be able to build this church that they were building. So eventually they did build a church. They bought some land, put a building on the land. Now, also something interesting happened in 1793, which was there was a real epidemic of yellow fever. Yellow fever affected the white citizens in Philadelphia far more than the black citizens. Most of the physicians and medical personnel exited the city. However, the black people stayed. They cared for, took care of the white people who were ill, as well as any black people who might have gotten ill, and they buried the dead. Someone fallaciously wrote a report to say they just did it for personal gain. And of course, they rebutted that if their own writing to say that wasn't the case. And fortunately, the mayor of Philadelphia indicated, no, that was not true at all. He had asked for their help and they very willingly and graciously agreed to help the city for the city at large. Because of this, there was some goodwill towards them and that helped in their cause to build this separate church for the Black people in the community. Nevertheless, as they kept moving forward, the white church still threatened to have them read out of the church, the Methodist Episcopal Church at the time. However, the Black people said, well, on what basis? We are following the doctrine of the Methodist church. They believed in the doctrine and they wanted black people to be exposed to it because it was simple. It was understandable. And the disciplines of the denomination, they actually thought were helpful and useful. Nevertheless, they continued to be persecuted by the white church and they were rejected by the reigning elder who refused to preach for them. Now you might wonder why is that important? They had their own preachers, However, in their particular denomination, you had to be ordained at certain levels to be able to bless the sacraments and communion and other aspects of the service. And so there would be parts that would be missing for a while until they had their own people in place. In the end, as it turned out, they were able to begin the new Black church on the 17th of July in 1794, and they invited Bishop Richard Asbury, who was visiting at the time and who was actually a supporter of the church, and they had him to open the service, do the initial sermon, and later he's the one who also ordained Richard Allen into the ministry, and that was in 1799. 
Absalom Jones, in the meantime, he earlier in 1795 was ordained as a deacon, which gave him special ministerial privileges in the Methodist Episcopal Church. And Jones later was the first black man to be ordained a priest. And that occurred in September 1804. While all of this was going on, the white church did open a rival building and their intention was to entice the black members away from the black church to come and worship at the rival building. However, the black church members and their own building now called Bethel refused to actually go to that building and to that church service because they had their own property. They had their own building. Later, a member from the white church in the leadership, Robert Roberts, came to the church to force himself as the pastor of the Black Bethel Church. However, the church knew in advance that he was coming. They had their own minister in the pulpit. The church was well attended. And there were so many people in the audience that Robert Roberts could not get through the crowd to even get to the pulpit. And so they prevented that particular usurpation at the time. They continued to be pressured to be affiliated with the white church. And so eventually they chose to be affiliated. What they didn't know is that by being affiliated with the white church and being a part of the denomination formally and officially, it meant that the denomination would own their church building and be able to tell them when to hold church services and when to do anything that they wanted to do. So the white members showed up and said, hand over the keys to the church building, and you're only going to be able to hold services on such and such a days and preach in such and such a times and so on. So the Black Church Bethel decided, no, we're not going to do that. They refused to hand over the keys, and they petitioned the court on a number of occasions in Pennsylvania in 1807 and 1815 for the right to exist as an independent institution. And in both of those cases, they won their petitions. So finally, in 1816, they established their own denomination, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, so that both free and enslaved Blacks could worship in dignity. And what really spearheaded this start of the church official, the Black church, was that these incidents that were occurring in Philadelphia were not isolated. Similar incidents were taking place in Baltimore and in other places along the mid-Atlantic and northern eastern seaboard of the United States. So once the denomination was established in 1816, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, they worked to upgrade the social status of the Black community. They taught literacy at Sabbath schools. They promoted the national organization to develop political strategies that would help Black people. And in 1793, Absalom Jones petitioned the U.S. Congress over the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act. This act was a horrific law such that if someone had escaped slavery, they could be brought back. They were often severely beaten, mistreated. People were often killed. And in addition, people who were never slaves, who were always free, or people who had purchased their freedom were also enslaved. So it was a terrible time in our nation's history. Eventually, they also put out a petition in 1797 to convince whites that slavery was immoral, it was offensive to God, and contrary to the nation's ideals. They also, in 1801, 
because of a mandate in the Constitution that was to end the slave trade, Jones started preaching every 1st of January anti-slavery sermons that were called a Thanksgiving sermon. And the sermon was also written as well as preached verbally. So as you can see, this Black church was doing a lot of work in the community once it got started. Later, in September 1830, they held the first Black convention of the AME Church, and it was held in Philadelphia at Bethel AME Church, which later came to be called Mother Bethel. That was the name that was given to this church. They addressed regional and national issues, and particularly because in 1826 and in 1829, there were riots in Cincinnati, and these riots were riots of white people who attacked the Black people and destroyed their businesses. As a result of these riots and attacks, 1,200 Black people left Cincinnati and moved to Canada. So the church convention raised funds for the resettlement of those people who were moving to Canada. So we can see here that the Black church was born out of a need to have a place to worship outside of the indignities of slavery, racism, Jim Crow, and other forms of racially-based disenfranchisement. So joining me today to talk more about the Black church past and present are my special guests, Pastors Ben and Wanda Anderson. Pastor Benjamin Anderson Jr. grew up in Baltimore, Maryland, the son of Pastors Benjamin and Martha Anderson. He is the second oldest of nine children. Pastor Ben has served in the role of senior pastor and has been associated with many different ministries throughout his military and civilian career. A Vietnam veteran, Pastor Ben retired from the military with a distinguished career and also had a very successful career in corporate America. Pastor Wanda G. Anderson is a native New Yorker who settled in Colorado Springs 25 years ago. In 2016, Pastor Wanda came to the Navigators, where she now serves as the Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Risk Management. She received her Juris Doctorate degree from Regent University School of Law in Virginia Beach, Virginia, and her Bachelor of Arts in Mass Media from Hampton University. For the last 15 years, Pastor Wanda has served as co-pastor with her husband, Pastor Ben, who is the Senior Pastor of Solid Rock Christian Center. Over the last 15 years, while serving as senior pastor of Solid Rock Christian Center, Pastor Ben also founded two nonprofits for which he served as executive director. He is also on the board of COS, I Love You, and is a founding member of the CityServe movement. Noted for his community service, his collaborations with other agencies, and for his leadership and projects that address marginalized communities in Colorado Springs, Pastor Ben was recently featured in the Colorado Springs Business Journal and on local news channels, both in Colorado Springs and in Denver. Pastor Wanda brings over 30 years of multi-jurisdictional nonprofit governance, risk management, and compliance experience with bar licenses in New York, New Jersey, and Colorado. The Andersons have four daughters, Marcy, Alexis, Ashley, and Deborah, and 10 grandchildren. So Pastor Ben and Pastor Wanda, welcome to the Voice of Leadership and to Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. 
It is truly a delight to have you with me today. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Karen. It's a pleasure for us to be here. So let me first ask you, how is it that you view the role and the need for the Black church in these ancient times? We're talking about a church that was started in the 1700s. And I want you to just think back to the times of slavery, think back to the times of the Emancipation Proclamation, the Reconstruction Era, all of that time period. How do you see the role and need for the Black church way back then? Let's imagine, if we can, that um, we're, we're thrust back in time and we are enslaved people who have no basic human rights and we're not even considered human beings. And then the folks on the plantation discover a way to recapture their personhood and to really embrace their humanity by gathering together in a community of faith and realizing that that community is a safe space. It's a safe harbor from the evils of, of enslavement, from the rigors of the work on, on plantations, just very, very difficult life in general. And, and they find ways to communicate, to find a, a common faith through the experience of being enslaved. And they realize there are certain things that slavery cannot take from us. And that is our dignity and our belief in a higher power. And so I believe that, that the church was really birthed out of these gatherings, these ad hoc gatherings in the plantation, in the fields, where they developed a common language, even though there were many different African dialects they're on the plantation, they developed a common language of faith, which not only bolstered them spiritually, but it also allowed them to create some strategies in terms of hoping to maybe escape the life that they have, looking to protect their families, looking to develop certain entrepreneurial ideas. I mean, they were masters at at agriculture. And so there were things that they were developing within those communities of faith that eventually led to their internal freedom, even though they remained slaves. So I think that the church was really birthed out of those gatherings that um, eventually became more formalized later, as we heard in the introduction, which was really wonderfully informative. Thank you, Dr. Karen. Thank you. And thank you yeah. for what you're saying. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And, and I want to say one thing, Pastor Wanda, about what you're mentioning. And that is you're almost, in my mind, talking about those inalienable rights that we actually get from God, not from people, not from man, that dignity. And also you mentioned the internal part of the dignity, no matter what is happening to us on the outside and externally, there's an internal dignity that's God-given that man really can't take away from another man. Pastor Ben, you wanted to say something about this? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, you know, just listening to, to your, you know, story up front, um, the perseverance that individuals had to have this foundation of, of a spiritual gathering called the church. Throughout all the, the obstacles 
that were thrown in their way from the very beginning of not being able to kneel in prayer. And yet to continue that fight as individuals and as a people, uh, when we talk about, as you just spoke about inalienable rights, but also to fight for their spiritual rights uh, in terms of a gathering. We, we have the right to gather as a church and we have the right to, to kind of serve in unity in terms of what we believe and for them to continue to fight for that and to have leaders like Bishop Ashbury and, and, and Richard Allen and Bishop Jones to, to kind of be pioneers for a people that were struggling to come together. So I, I kind of look at the AME church as a denomination that really is the bedrock and foundation of who we are today in terms of, of the black church. They really withstood the storm um, from white America at the time and brought us from this place of, of slavery to where we are today. There was so much opposition at every turn, and yet they continued. And I think if we could interview some of them today, if they were on this podcast, they would talk about how God resourced them through prayer in order to have the victories that they had. They truly were people of faith. They weren't trying to do all of this in their own power. Yes. And and, And I would probably say, I mean, you know, to think that maybe most slaves probably didn't read. And so you had these individuals who who studied the word, who knew the word, and 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 possibly Paul was an example for them in terms of perseverance. That you know, Paul spoke in in his letters how he went through so much to tell the gospel. And um, you can sort of look at those leaders and say their lives were certainly an example of Paul's life as well. That's a great example about gathering inspiration, you know, from the biblical uh, personalities who also went through hardships as well. They would derive some great degree of strength. And I think what was unique about this church is you had a number of free Blacks, even way back then, who were not even enslaved, and it was also open to enslaved Black people. And I think that the the St. George's Church, the white church, really missed an opportunity because the church was mixed. They had both Black and white people worshiping together in the 1700s. What an opportunity. And yet they somehow didn't step into that destiny in a way that was useful or powerful long-term. Yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful that one of the, the beautiful outcomes of the AME Church and, and even the gatherings, the, the informal gatherings on the plantation were the beautiful songs that came out of that experience. And, and having gone to an historically Black college and university um, and, and being part of the choir at Hampton University, we sang those spirituals and, and learning the context in which those were written 
it's just amazing to know that through that adversity and through the perseverance of the enslaved community, this, the beautiful music that, that just came out of that. And it really mirrored the, the Psalms where we see that 40% of the Psalms are songs of lament mm -hmm. and, and they're songs of perseverance. And so the slave community, they were able to appropriate the word of God, even though literacy was low and they created music that has stood the, the test of time throughout all the generations that we're still singing today. That's a very, very good point about the music that goes along with the experience and how it parallels the Psalms in the Bible, because those Psalms came out of difficulty, tough times, and oppression as well. So there's a lot in the Bible that African people can relate to, and particularly the African people who were in the Americas and going through the enslavement experience. Clearly, this would be encouragement on the journey and encouragement along the way. So when we have that kind of history and that kind of background that you're talking about, and we see the role of the Black church at this really, really difficult time, what do you say to those Black people today who are bitter towards Christianity? And they're bitter towards Christianity because they see and they talk about the way that Blacks were treated by white Christians, including at the St. George's Church before that and after that, and during all of these past times of oppression, so that some Black people today actually say that Christianity is the white man's religion. How do you respond to that point of view? Just historically from the Bible, just looking at the history of of scripture, we see ourselves in scripture in the New Testament. We see ourselves as the 12 tribes of Israel. We see ourselves as people of color who originally um, God created. So I don't debate with individuals about this being a white man's religion as much as I try to kind of show and demonstrate in some way from the Old Testament and from how God's creation from the beginning, that he's talking about us as people of color, as the 12 tribes of Israel. And historically, um, that has, has been documented. So I, I don't debate with individuals in terms of the white man's religion, or Christianity being that. I try to show how the church, the black church itself, and how it has helped us as people um, throughout the centuries. When we talk about perseverance, that's just one element of the AME church was well, how they established schools and created this, this propensity for education. And so we can't always look at religion as the spiritual side. That's good too. But how about the side where we see where the church or Christianity was, a, was, was the guiding force for those of us today that go to HBCUs, right? Those of us that, that are educated now, we had those individuals in the church, if you want to call it the white man's religion, well, we had those individuals in the church who were like fighting to teach people how to read, 
to teach people math, to create schools, to create colleges. So those individuals need to maybe go back and look at our history and see how much we are where we are today because of Christianity. Dr. Curran, I, I, I know that's been said a lot, but I choose not to debate that. You know, in fact, one of the things I would say is this. If you really look at the Bible and you look at God's plan from the beginning, you have God saying that he's sending his son for all people. Yeah. This is coming to the Jewish nation first. They're the stewards, we're the stewards of the word and so on and so forth. But God's plan was always to make of every nation under the sun because we're all his children. He created all of us. And he says, there's not going to be any more Jew or Greek. I'm going to have one people, you know, in Christ Jesus. That was always God's plan. And so for anyone to claim that any one group it's the white man's religion. No, it's God's plan. It's God's way and purpose. And it's for all of us. And no one can capture it and claim that it's theirs when it belongs to God. And it's for all people. And we should want it to be, you know, for all people, because that was God's design and intention. That's what I would say about that. I, I don't believe it was God's intention that we, we um, worship religion anyway. It was all about relationship. And so when we focus on religion as, as the predominant thing um, versus relationship, then we miss what God wants to do with every tongue, tribe, and nation, which is what he always intended in, in, in the whole creation narrative. So, Yeah, in Revelation, he speaks to the fact of what the kingdom of heaven should be and what it should look like. And what the church should be, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, one blood, one nation. And I just believe that, you know, that's what God intended from the beginning when he said we're all created in his image and all of us. So and then he ends with that's how he wants his kingdom to look like on earth. And that's what it should look like once we all get to heaven. Amen to that. I certainly am a proponent of that with you as well. So we were, we've been talking a little bit about the ancient role of the Black church going all the way back to slavery and, and those time periods subsequent. What about the role that the Black church played in the civil rights movement? What do you want to say about that and the value and the benefit of the Black church at that time? Well, during the civil rights movement, um, there were still certain aspects, the earlier part of the civil rights movement, there were still Jim Crow laws in place. Segregation was huge. And so there were not a lot of open facilities for people of color to congregate. And so the black church was that safe space. And it was at the black church where people could talk about their issues, their struggles, talk about legislation, talk about policies and broken systems and laws that needed to be abolished, talk about Supreme Court cases that were 50, 60, 70 years old that needed to be abolished and overturned. And so it was that venue that offered people of color, again, a safe gathering space like it did during the times of, of slavery. And they could actually plan. Um, people of color were, were even more educated during that time. Uh, 
And so people with advanced degrees could then come and lend their expertise to the Black community and say, all right, these are the things that we need to do to organize, to rally, to protest, to form organizations that can address these social ills and bring justice to our community. And so the Black church was really a huge, huge proponent in making sure that those meetings took place, that folks could gather across socioeconomic lines, despite educational experiences, despite um, literacy experiences, they could gather together and plan and, and, and really come together in a fortified way to really bring legislative issues to the forefront. And they did that in a faith-based context, bearing in mind that as people of color, we also bear the image of God. And so it was a wonderful opportunity for, for both the educated and, and uneducated folks of color to begin to plan and to let the church be the catalyst of the movement. You know, very well spoken. It, it, it also was that meeting place. And when we look back at the civil rights movement, we can see that a lot of those plans were made and developed in the church. And that was the center of where marches began. And even then you had obstacles where we look back at the Birmingham bombing of those four daughters um, that were murdered in that bombing, um, which was the meeting place for African-Americans. This is where we met in the church. And so you, you had this ongoing hatred um, by white society to, to kind of put a barrier and obstacles in the way of us being unified and coming together to march on behalf of for social justice. I mean, we're, we're talking about, when we talk about the rights God gave us, that's all we're fighting for, you know? And when we look back at our history, it was the church that was the bedrock and foundation of the civil rights movement. Now, granted, a lot of that, uh, those individuals, we had, we had white clergy too, who were sensitive to the movement and joined in. But when we look at civil rights, we can always point that it was the church and out of the church NAACP took happen. And so, I always believe that, you know, the struggle for civil rights, if we didn't have leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King, I mean, we had some on the violent side who, who Stokely Carmichael, um, H. Rap Brown, these were individuals who grew up, um, their method of, of social justice was a little different than Dr. King, but, they had the same goals in terms of freeing African-Americans. They grew up in the church too. So they, you know, um, they kind of went a different way, but, but when we look at Malcolm X and the whole Muslim 
brothers movement. So yeah, civil rights definitely was started in the church. You know, one of the things that really strikes me too about the church and the civil rights movement is this, and that is if it had not been in the church, the movement solidly nestled in the church, covered by prayer, by the people of faith, we probably would have seen even greater loss of life, greater bloodshed. I think that the nonviolent approaches that Dr. Martin Luther King and others really led and spearheaded working through the existing legal systems of the day and lending talent from other communities where people had the skills and the abilities and who could lend them to the different communities to say, here's how you use what's in place, use it legally and effectively. I think that that has really benefited not only the Black community, but really our whole country, because our whole country was heading in the way that could be problematic for all citizens of the United States. So if anyone is disenfranchised, the whole country really will suffer. And so by approaching it in this way, and that movement being in the Black church, it was covered so that it occurred in a way that I would call decent and in order. One other thing was, it was generational too, because in those movements, we taught young people the significance of marching. We taught our youth the significance of what it meant for social justice. So when, when we had the George Floyd movie, you see all the young people now who are carrying banners for Black Lives Matter. This was a 60s movement. It, this wasn't new to 20, you know, 2020, 2019. That was taking place in 64, 65, throughout the 60s, how we taught our youth to come to church, be involved in the movement. And when it was time to march, we had our youth marching alongside of us. That's right. The point that the children were included, too, they were in the marches as well. It wasn't just the adults. That's right. There were certain marches that were just children, the children's marches in the 60s. And so, and they were taught how to withstand the, the beatings, the brutality, the hoses, the dogs. They were taught all of that very, very intentionally. And so, yes, you're right. We, we see the children and young people and young adults participating in the marches today. And it is reminiscent of, of the 60s and the civil rights movement. What I would love to see in modern times is a continuation of that training for, for how yeah. to work effectively in terms of how do you resist the, the brutality and oppression, particularly from a faith-based perspective, and in a way so that those who are marching don't get blamed unfairly, you know? Yes. And it has to do with how you show up in those marches. Right. There was a yes. lot of training in the 60s. You mm -hmm. didn't just show up at a march. You had to be trained That's to right. resist in a nonviolent way and to resist in a way that was legally defensible and so on and so forth. So that it was clear on that, you know, Pettus Bridge that, oh my, you know, even the whites watching the news said, this is an outrage. This is a disgrace because these people are peaceful. They're not doing anything. That could only happen because of the training that those people had and how to march in that case. Yes. 
Yeah. So thank you for sharing that part of it as well. So how else would you say that the black church at that time, you know, met the, the felt needs of the community? I think, you know, when we, when we talk about felt needs, I tend to, to think of more of physical needs, right? Clothing, shelter, food, how the black church, well, I mean, you know, if you go back and look, that's essentially how black pastors were paid back in the day. They were paid by food, you know, and, and we could put you up in a little place to help for shelter and we pay you by bringing you food. We didn't have a lot of money. So I think the church provided the need, physical needs, such as a place to stay. And a place where you could come and know that you could have a meal, a place where they provided clothing for you. So those, those are the things. And then a place, Sunday school. Sunday school was an educational piece as much as it was to teach you about the Bible. So all of those things, I think, in, in the Black church uh, provided not only a spiritual need, but a physical need also. I believe it also provided an emotional refuge. Going through the, the difficulties of being Black in America and the day-to-day issues and struggles and challenges. I think the church became just a, a place of healing. It was, a, it was a, a healing community that was offered for people who were just dealt a, a difficult blow throughout the week. And then Sunday came. And Sunday was a time where you could be yourself. Even through worship, you could express your emotional pain. You could sing the songs of lament and victory at the same time. You could gather with people who had like experiences, who understood what you'd gone through, who didn't cast judgment or condemn you. It was really a place for emotional healing to take place, which is why most of us growing up in church probably stayed in church all Sunday if not all weekend, because it was a place of fortification so that when Monday came, we could go back out into that cruel world and face what we needed to face, knowing that we had a community of like-minded people who would embrace us and surround us and pray for us and accept us. It's very well stated. And as both of you are talking, I'm thinking about the church in Acts, you know, when the church came together and they provided yeah. each other's needs and took care of each other, whatever, if somebody lacked housing or lacked clothing or food, they would share and, and, and provide support. Because I can imagine that back in the early church days, as some were leaving the Jewish synagogue, they probably were kicked out of community in a lot of ways. And as others in the Gentile communities were also disenfranchised in some of their pagan uh, centers where they lived. So it was a place to get the resources that maybe you were cut off from now because you selected this way, you know, to follow. And some of that still today, I mean, 
the church was where you got to eat a meal that you may not have gotten at home. I mean, I'm just thinking back when I grew up as a kid in church, on Sundays, we had a full meal. And the church, the sisters at church were the ones who made that meal and all the kids. I mean, we got to eat last, but... but <laughs> I'm sure they saved you something. <laughs> yeah, but we got to eat a meal. I mean, it just was. It, it was... You kind of look forward to Sunday in some ways because you knew that you were going to be full when you came home. Now, a lot of people today can relate to that because the school system has often served in that modern times. Some children only eat any kind of decent meal of food at school. At school. Yeah. And with the pandemic we've had and the lockdowns and virtual school, some children have really been starving even in the United States. Oh my gosh, yes. So you're right. That's it's a really important social center in terms of providing sustenance for the people, the church as well, historically in, in what you're saying. You know, earlier I talked about the fact that in the black church a lot of leaders were developed. And so what would you say then is the role of the black church as far as leadership development for both black men and also black women? What the church provided for black men, especially being deacons, maybe lay ministers, Mm -hmm. was some form of leadership that they didn't have anywhere else. Um, Their day-to-day job may have been laborers, service industry, but when they came to church, they were leading people in some format, or they were over deacons who may have been over different types of ministries, finance for that matter, those who had a propensity for finance or numbers or math um, ended up being the deacons and trustees uh, for the church. So it provided some level of significance for black men that otherwise they would not have had had it not been for the church. Yeah, and in terms of black women, so, you know, way back in the day, and unfortunately, even still some today, um, black women were precluded from occupying positions of, of senior pastoral leadership in the church. And so they found ways to engage in functional leadership. And so they were either the missionaries of the church or they were part of the evangelistic movement of the church or they were Sunday school teachers or they were the ones who were the hospitality specialists or they were the ushers or deaconesses. And so over the course of time, when seminaries were open to educating women of color, Black women got their seminary degrees and their seminary education, and then they were then in positions to occupy senior pastoral leadership roles. And so I think that the church provided women with an outlet to express those leadership giftings, even though the titles didn't often accompany the functional roles that they had. And primarily for women who were running households, whether with husbands or without husbands, they had these inherent leadership qualities anyway that just transferred over into the church. Funny you should talk about it in that way because I was reflecting back on my own childhood and growing up in the church. And 
And remembering it was in, in Baltimore. Church. In Baltimore. Yeah, Pastor Ben, you and I are both from Baltimore. We didn't know each other back then. However, yeah, we both grew up in Baltimore. And I remember it was in Baltimore in church that I learned about public speaking. It's where I first started. That's yes. where I developed those skills. Yes. <laughs> I'm resonating with what you're saying in terms of, and if we look at almost any significant Black leader over the years, they were groomed and developed in the church. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's so true. There was a lot of opportunity there that didn't exist in other places and a lot of nurturing that occurred in the church as well. So today, there's a relevant kind of a move to support multicultural churches. What are your thoughts about moving to a more multicultural church direction? Are we ready for that? What will be gained? What will be lost? What's your opinion? Yes, we, we are ready for that. I think what bothers me about the multicultural church is that we seem to have more white uh, pastors over multicultural churches. More blacks will go to a white pastor in a multicultural church but whites won't go to a black pastor in a multicultural environment. That's just my opinion, you know, that I see. But I think it is what the Bible speaks about in terms of, of us all being one nation and how the, how the church should be viewed. But there also is something to be said about cultural worship. And when we get to where we talk about cultural worship, then that is expressed more in an environment um, like the black church, where our worship is more cultural or can be. And so we kind, we kind of assimilate to that because that's our culture. But I think we need to see, and, and maybe we're seeing more of that now, where Black pastors have multicultural congregations that are mixed. Mm -hmm. You know, when I think of a multicultural church, it's not just diverse bodies showing up to a, a worship service. Multiculturalism invades every aspect of the worship experience. It is the music. It is the, the even the reading of scripture through a multicultural lens and not through a monolithic lens. It is the engagement of expressions of worship in the church building that, that makes room for every cultural expression and not just a majority culture expression with diverse bodies. And so when I think of a multicultural church, it is pervasively multicultural and not just segmented in, in a multicultural way. Yeah, that's a lot of work to really create an environment that is truly multicultural and not just different groups of people assimilating to one culture, so to speak. So I think that's a very important point that you're mentioning. And Pastor Ben, you said something about the cultural worship experience. Say more about what you mean by cultural worship experience. Well, I think when we, when we as Blacks or African-Americans, we tend to 
our cultural experience can, in terms of worship, be the music that we like in worship, the gospel music, the stomping, the tamarines, the, you know, the winding up. Uh, when we, when, when a preacher preaches. So all of those things have cultural and, hi and historic relevations to people of color. And so some of us continue to like that. And we continue to go to churches that provide that for us. And that's why I think sometimes, you know, it's okay to have a church that provides that for people that may not be multicultural. Okay, if that is the worship expression that you, you like and, and that feeds your soul, and then that's where you should probably be. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that experience is not gonna be for everybody. And when we look at multicultural churches now, they're more contemporary. They have not been founded out of an African-American experience. I don't know. I don't know how many will talk about social justice and and people of color being, you know, discriminated against on a Sunday. How many how many of those churches on a during the George Floyd or, or any of those opportunities when we talk about um, individuals being discriminated or murdered in the streets, come to church on a Sunday morning as a pastor and speak to those issues. And if your church is primarily white, do you have the courage to still stand up and say that? I don't know. And I know many churches that are multicultural don't because of that. And many black pastors of multicultural churches don't because they may fear, you know, well, if I speak on social issues and I speak on injustice, then I may lose my congregation. That is so true. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has taught us is that people are gonna leave anyway. They're going to leave anyway. And so if we build our ministry around um, retention, then we stand to dilute the message that God has given us to speak and the revelation that God provides. And so you're absolutely right, Pastor Ben. We, we find that um, in multicultural churches, it takes a particular amount of courage and, and a yielding to the Holy Spirit to really bypass the cultural influences, the pressures to keep people at all costs while diluting the message of the gospel, which is all about justice. God was passionate about, is passionate about justice. And yet we tend to lose our passion for it because we are, we become afraid, afraid of the people, afraid of losing um, bodies, afraid of losing popularity, afraid of losing influence. And, and, and that's one thing this pandemic has taught us is that no model lasts forever and that we better be prepared to move with the cloud 
and and know when God is moving and, and changing, we better be moving with him because we can't rely upon a model that's just not sustainable. You know, I think that's really important what you're saying is be willing to move where God is moving and where God is leading. And what I'm also hearing in that is that there's room for all different kinds of churches, whether multicultural, whether a black church or some other kinds of churches. And no matter what kind of church it is, that church has got to be willing to be courageous and to speak God's word in season and out of season and to address the real issues of the day is what I yes. hear you saying. That's what I hear you yes. talking about. Yeah. Yes. As we're sort of winding down on this segment, Tell people how they can reach you. If they want to reach you, want to know more about your church, where can they find that information? Well, um, we have, of course, we're on Facebook, social media, Solid Rock Christian Center, uh, Pastors Ben and Wanda Anderson. Uh, my email is pastor at solid rock hyphen C as in Colorado Springs, CS dot org pastor at solid rock dash cs dot org wonderful we'll put that in the show notes as well so that people can find you and learn a little bit more about solid rock christian center so what would you say are your words of wisdom for my audience of corporate executive business leaders Corporate business leaders are listening, and we're talking about the Black church. We're talking about leadership in that context today. What would you say to them as they're leading in our nation's corporations and also across the globe? I think as people of faith, whether you are in marketplace leadership or in faith-based leadership, don't discount the role of the Holy Spirit in your leadership journey. Holy Spirit is designed to be a helper. And as leaders, we need all the help we can get from God in our leadership journey to really faithfully lead those places and, and people who've been entrusted to us. And have courage and boldness to do something new and different. I just think coming out of COVID, God wants to do something new and different and have the courage to do it. Don't feel like you got to go back to what was. And I believe that a lot of pastoral leaders are trying to recreate what they had. And that is not what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us to do in this season. If we are talking about new seasons, if we're talking about new wine, fresh wine, fresh anointing, new anointing, then allow the Holy Spirit to make it new and be okay with going down a road that God told Joshua, Joshua, just stay close to me because you haven't been down this way before. So be bold enough, courageous enough to take a road that you haven't been down before. I thank you very much for saying those words of wisdom to my audience today. And I want to thank you for being here on The Voice of Leadership and on Dr. Karen Speaks Leadership. And I'd like to just summarize a few things that you did say, and you did a summary right there that was excellent. I'll say this, though. I'll say to my audience out there, 
Pastor Spenham and Pastor Wander, what they talked about today was there is a dignity that God has given all of us internally. It's a God-given dignity. And one of the roles of the church is to acknowledge that dignity that's God-given, is to nurture, develop, and build, and grow it. And as the church, no matter what kind of church you are, whether multicultural, a Black church, a white church, or whatever kind of church it is, be willing, as they're saying right now, to go where God is leading. And God is moving in some new directions. So we are successful only to the extent that we listen to the word of God. So those of you out there as marketplace ministry leaders in the workplace, the same thing applies to you. How can you make a difference that's God-inspired and God-ordained in the work that you do every day? That's really the clarion call of ministry for right now. So I want to end our segment with a reading from the scripture, which is from Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 through 40. And it says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left side. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. So go forward and do likewise. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.